I would invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation. The apocalypse of Jesus Christ as we continue to make our way through this glorious text. We will be examining the last part of the prologue and the first eight verses here this morning. In 1983, an artist by the name of Anne Murray recorded a song that became very popular. It was entitled, A Little Good News. And the first part of that song went like this. I rolled out this morning, kids had the morning news show on, Bryant Gumbel was talking about the fighting in Lebanon, some senator was squawking about the bad economy, it's going to get worse you see, we need a change in policy. There's a local paper rolled up in a rubber band, one more sad stories, one more than I can stand, just once how I'd like to see the headlines say, not much to print today. Can't find nothing bad to say because nobody robbed a liquor store on the lower part of town. Nobody OD'd. Nobody burned a single building down. Nobody fired a shot in anger. Nobody had to die in vain. We sure could use a little good news today. Well, it's been 25 years since that song was recorded and we're still waiting for a little good news. In fact, many people would give anything if we were living even back in those days. Now, certainly there is good news. There's the good news of the gospel that gives us hope. But quite frankly, as we look at the political and economic and moral and even environmental indicators of our age, we can readily see that never before, like any other time in history, our world is moving inexorably towards a catastrophic end. Although man, as Paul says, suppresses the truth and unrighteousness, nevertheless his conscience constantly reminds him that decay and death will be the consequence of sin. Indeed, the wages of sin is death. Most people in our American culture are, are so busy worshiping athletics and celebrities that they seldom take time to evaluate the true condition of their souls. Jesus predicted this very thing, that just prior to His terrifying return, the condition of the human race would be like the days of Noah. People will be eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. In other words, they'll be going on life as usual, completely oblivious to the world around them and to their own guilt before a holy God. Indeed, our culture is so intoxicated with the, the opiate of entertainment and what some rightfully call affluenza that many people are like the proverbial frog in the kettle. They are utterly oblivious to the increasing heat of the waters of reckoning that will one day destroy them. Now, occasionally, some sober up long enough to listen to their conscience and honestly evaluate 
what's going on in the world around them. And sadly, many of them try to discern the future by going to the wrong places. Thousands appeal to the 16th century occult prophet Nostradamus, who derived his prophecies from demons through astrology and private occult rituals, forms of divination that God condemns. In fact, after the September 11th attack on New York and the Pentagon, the word Nostradamus became the most popular search word on the Internet. How sad. Other people turn to tarot cards and psychics and horoscopes and mediums. What Isaiah called consulting the dead on behalf of the living again, a practice God forbids, because God knows that while the dead cannot communicate with the living, demons can and they will masquerade themselves as the dead. And then, of course, the more sophisticated deception is that of false teachers and false prophets that masquerade as God's shepherds. Jesus called them wolves in sheep's clothing. Men and women who mislead other people. They've been deceived by spirits, demonic spirits, and they propagate doctrines of demons, as Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 4.1. But dear friends, only our sovereign God can predict the future because He alone is the one that can work all things after the counsel of His will. And He alone has disclosed the elements of His eternal purposes to us through His infallible record, the Word of God. What would we do without it? Now, certainly, genuine Bible-believing Christians around the world are aware of the Word, and it brings great comfort. Nevertheless, we groan, don't we? Don't we all have a sense of longing in our heart for something different than what we experience? Longing for a day of ultimate restoration. Paul tells us in Romans 8.26 that even the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. As he shares our pain and brings our prayers and petitions before the throne of grace. In fact, in Romans 8 and verse 19, we read that the anxious longing of all creation awaits eagerly for the revealing, literally the unveiling, the uncovering of the sons of God. An unveiling, dear friends, that will occur when the Lord Jesus returns and outfits his own to share in his glory. The text goes on to say, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. In other words, all of creation is waiting to birth something new. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. But, O oh, child of God, we do not despair, do we? Because the promises of God are sure. He cannot lie. And therefore, Paul concluded that section in Romans 8 and verse 24. He says, for in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. 
And to strengthen our hope, he has disclosed to us a mystery that has been concealed throughout the ages. And the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here he has, through Christ, laid bare that which has been hidden. An uncovering of the last chapter of redemptive history. The consummation of all things. A final epoch of judgment upon the wicked and salvation unto Israel and many Gentiles. A coming era when the Lord Jesus Christ will return to establish His glorious messianic kingdom upon an earth that He will renovate and return once again to Edenic splendor. A time when He will rule and reign on a throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years. The rightful heir of the throne of David. A dynasty that will bridge be a bridge into the eternal state, an everlasting kingdom that will have no end. A day when, according to Isaiah 11:9, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. No wonder John would tell us here in verse 3 of Revelation 1, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. For the time is near. Will you follow along with me as I read these first eight verses of the revelation to John, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the prologue of this apocalypse? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants, the things which must shortly take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. As you may recall, we have divided this section into five different categories First, we see the essence of the revelation in verses 1 and 2. It could be summarized in this way. This revelation is a divine disclosure of previously hidden truths given to Jesus Christ from God the Father as a description of the Son's glorious inheritance from the Father. Events that are imminent, the next thing to occur on the prophetic calendar. Events that have been communicated to John by an angel that he might give testimony to all that he sees and give that testimony to the bondservants 
of Christ Jesus. That is the essence, number one, of the book of Revelation. Secondly, we read of the blessing inherent in this disclosure. Verse 3, blessed is he who reads, hears, and heeds, he tells us. And he tells us the reason here, for the time is near, meaning it is imminent. Remember, time is not chronos in the original language, denoting time on a clock or on a calendar, but it is kairos. It is referring to the time of an era or a season, a period, uh, an age, an epoch in history that is marked out by very unique characteristics. You might recall, as I said last time we were together, that this term is used in a very technical sense in the word of God to describe a crucial and distinct period relating to the end of human history when the earthly kingdom of Israel will be established. We see this all through Scripture. This is the next epoch, dear friends, of redemptive history on God's prophetic calendar. And as the text reads, it is near. In other words, it is next. It is imminent with respect to prophetic revelation. Now, beloved, catch this. Herein is the reason for the blessing for those who study this word. When, when we read it, when we hear it, when we heed it, our fears are dispelled because we have an understanding of the Lord's revelation to us. It gives us perspective regarding the chaotic downward spiral of our world and all of the things that are going on. The other day, I was listening to Fox News, and one of the anchors was uh, interviewing one of the Middle East experts, a military man and diplomat, to comment on the never-ending and now escalating fighting between Israel and Hamas and Hezbollah and others. And to paraphrase what the man said... He basically stated that Islam is doing everything they can to return us to the dark ages, as he put it, the dark ages of human sacrifice, quote unquote. He went on to say, in answer to the question, the short term resolution is for Hamas to quit sending rockets into Israel, but that's just a short term fix. He went on to say, Ultimately, there is no long-term solution. How sad. But, beloved, there is a solution, and in the book of Revelation, we read of that solution. God has revealed to us what He's going to do with all of those nations that align, him, align themselves against His covenant people, against Israel. And, of course, the problem that we've seen down through the years is that ungodly men that do not understand the word of God constantly try to present a political remedy to a spiritual problem. And if you don't understand God's plan for Israel, frankly, you don't understand what's going on in the Middle East, what's going on in the world, and you don't understand Bible prophecy. And you certainly will not receive the blessing from the Apocalypsis Jesu Christu, the revealing of Jesus Christ. 
because you don't understand that the epoch, the time, it's near. Today we want to finish the prologue by examining the benediction, the doxology, and the theme of this section of Scripture. First of all, we would look here in verse 4 as we understand the benediction, this expression of, of good wishes in this salutation. Now, before we look at verse 4, may I help you understand that in the ancient days, they would sign their letters at the beginning, not at the end. And sometimes I think that makes a little more sense. Because when you get a letter, what's the first thing you do? You look at the end to see who wrote it. Well, they put it at the beginning. And we read here, verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now, these are seven historical churches in the Roman province of Asia Minor in the first century. That would be modern day Turkey. We will learn much more about these churches in chapters two and three. And he says, grace to you and peace. Now, beloved, here we see God's passion for every believer to appropriate his grace given to us through Christ, which will always result in both a subjective as well as an objective peace. A subjective peace in the sense that when we come to a saving knowledge of Christ, we have a tranquility, an, uh, an experience of assurance, because we know that objectively we have been justified, we have been declared righteous because of the grace of Christ. Therefore, as Paul said in Romans 5.1, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some might read this text and say, my goodness, if you believe all of this is in the future and God gives us here all of these detailed descriptions of his wrath and his judgment and the ultimate doomsday prophecy, on what basis could we possibly experience grace and peace? That seems like an odd introduction. Well, think of it this way. Without an understanding of God's wrath, dear friends, you will never be able to grasp the depths of His grace. Until we are first amazed at our sin, we will never be able to be amazed at His grace. Moreover, in our Lord's revelation here, we see the magnitude of His mercy and His grace in His patience during the church age to bring more people to a saving knowledge of Himself. And finally, we see the most incomprehensible demonstration of his grace in the ultimate fulfillment of his promises to his covenant people, Israel, despite the magnitude of their rejection. Paul speaks of a day in Romans 11 when all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. He went on to say, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And because of such infinite and undeserved love for his kinsmen that God gives them, Paul therefore bursts forth into, into praise and he says, all the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Dear friends, the details of these astounding truths are found here in the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have 
an opportunity to experience a profound measure of grace and peace as we understand these things. Now, notice the text. It says grace to you and peace from. Well, who's it from? Well, here we have a threefold source. One from each member of the triune Godhead, the Father, the Holy Spirit and the Son. First, from the Father, him who is and who was and who is to come. Through a unique grammatical construction here, John describes the eternality of the Father, one which also could describe the Son and the Holy Spirit, which, of course, would once again demonstrate the indissoluble union of the triune Godhead. Now, while it is the Son's second advent that is in view here in this revelation, nevertheless, because the Son represents the Father in a very real sense, This will also be the return of the Father as well. It says, who is, or literally the one who is. He is the great I am, the I am of the Old Testament, a term denoting his preexistence, his eternality. It says, who is and who was and who is to come. The one who was refers to his continual existence in past time. And again, it underscores the idea that the Father has always existed. And it says, who is to come? Literally, the one coming or the coming one. And then you have the second source of this salutation of blessing. It comes from the Holy Spirit. There John says, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now here, dear friends, John links the Holy Spirit's activity with the imagery stated in Zechariah 4, verses 1 through 10, where he is, descri- he is described as having seven lamps and seven eyes. And here it's linked with the seven spirits. And there is also an obvious parallel with the sevenfold ministries of the Holy Spirit that is found in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2. That will one day rest upon, as we read that that passage of Scripture, rest upon the descendant of David, the Christ, who will rule the world. Moreover, as we read the Word of God, we discover that the number seven is a number of perfection, a number of fulfillment, a number of completion. And so this would denote the fullness or completeness of the Holy Spirit in all of his perfections as he is seen here before the throne in all of his glory. And then the third source of this blessing is from the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 5, it says, and from Jesus Christ. And then we have three descriptive titles. First of all, the faithful witness. We see a similar expression in Revelation 3, verse 14 and chapter 19, verse 11 as well. He is the one, as we know, who without favoring did the will of the Father and perfectly communicated the truth of the gospel. The Lord Jesus is the divine logos that reveals to us the revelation of God, as John tells us in John 1, 1, verse 14 and verse 18. But this is also, and I want you to understand this, an allusion to Psalm 89, verse 37, where the throne of David will be established forever like the moon and the witness in the sky is faithful. A text that denotes Jesus Christ as the heir of this Davidic dynasty who will one day sit upon the throne of David. Well, he's not only the faithful witness, but John tells us he is the firstborn of the dead. The prototokos, 
Now, this does not mean he is the first one chronologically, because we know that there were resurrections that preceded that of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. In fact, the Lord Jesus himself raised others from the dead in his earthly ministry. But this is referring to the firstborn in preeminence. Again, in Psalm 89, verse 27, God promises to make David's seed my firstborn. Same concept here. The highest of the kings of the earth. And therefore, he is also designated here by John as, notice, the ruler of the kings of the earth. So indeed, by virtue of his deity and his Davidic lineage, a lineage that was uncontested by the Jews, one that we read in the genealogies of both Matthew and Luke. Because of this, he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Jesus is indeed the king of the Jews, the king of kings and Lord of lords. Now, I would submit to you that all three of these descriptions of the Lord Jesus Christ that are derived from Psalm 89 indicate that The inspired author's intention here is to have us focus on the ultimate fulfillment of the promises that the Lord has once made to David in 2 Samuel 7 concerning the earthly kingdom where his throne will be established forever. Now, think practically with me for a moment. Imagine if you were in one of these seven churches and you were hearing this letter read to you for the first time. What an amazing experience that would have been to think that somehow the triune Godhead has condescended to your lowly estate and ultimately given to all believers an infallible record of the revelation of Jesus Christ so that we can all be blessed, so that we can all experience a deeper measure of his grace and peace. What a magnificent benediction of blessing. And naturally, this will result in an outpouring of praise, which leads us to the fourth category of this prologue, and that is the doxology of the revelation. Notice in verse five at the end, John says to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. My dear friends, what a precious, what a profound doxology to think of the perfect Atonement, when the innocent Lamb of God became our substitute and voluntarily endured the wrath of the Father that we might have the righteousness of Christ imputed to our account. And because of Him, we have been, as John says, released. Little Greek verb, luo. It means to, to untie or to set free. And as we look at the grammar of this text, we see that this is an accomplished fact that has occurred in the past that never needs to be repeated. In other words, because of the cross, we are no longer slaves to sin. We've been released from that bondage. The penalty has been paid in full. The power has been broken. In fact, earlier, John wrote in 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, hilasterion, is the the Greek word, and it means the satisfaction 
or the appeasement, the appeasement of the divine wrath. In fact, it's interesting in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This, the Greek translates the word mercy seat with the same word, hilasterion. Remember, the mercy seat rested above the Ark of the Covenant. And within the Ark of the Covenant were the tablets of the law that had been violated. And above the Ark of the Covenant, between the cherubim, hovered the glorious Shekinah of the presence of God. And because of man's sin, man could never enter into the presence of God. There had to be a separation there. The only way man could enter into the presence of God is through the shedding of blood. And on one day of every year, the high priest would come and he would shed the blood of an innocent sacrifice to symbolically demonstrate the payment for his sins and the sins of the people. And ultimately, that mercy seat, that hilasterion, symbolized the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the ultimate hilasterion, the ultimate propitiation for our sins. So, beloved, herein is the source of John's doxology, why his heart would just, would just overflow with excitement. And I might add that this too should be the theme of every believer. This should be the topic of our conversation and the theme of our songs. This doxology could be summarized in this way. Praise be to the one who has an abiding love for believers that has been proven by his finished work of redemption in the past. Something that never needs to be completed and has thereby freed us from the penalty and from the power of sin by means of His shed blood. Paul said in Romans 3.25 that we are justified. In other words, we're declared righteous as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. And his blood through faith. That great 19th century premillennial theologian and hymn writer Horatius Bonar understood this and he penned these profound lyrics in one of his hymns. Quote, Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Thy grace alone, O God, to me can pardon speak. Thy power alone, O Son of God, can this sore bondage break. No other work save Thine, no other blood will do. No strength save that which is divine can bear me safely through. End quote. Well, John continues here in verse 6 in this great doxology. He says, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. A kingdom here, this is in this context a designation of the sphere of God's rule over all believers in Christ. Though corporately we are a kingdom, individually we are priests in that we have direct access to the Father and we give and offer up sacrifices to Him through our service and our praise. 
Then he goes on to say, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see, herein we learn the extent of our praise. It is to be unending. It is to be eternal. Amen, he closes with. This was the customary solemn response to a prophetic utterance of ancient days. It was one that indicated not only your approval of what was stated, but also your commitment to those words. In fact, the Greek word amen comes from the Hebrew word hamen, which means to be firm. So in these first six verses of the prologue, we have discovered, first of all, the essence, then secondly, the blessing, thirdly, the benediction, fourthly, the doxology of the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. But what is its theme? What is its theme? And that's what we see, fifthly, as we study this text. And, beloved, here's where the excitement begins to build. Here's where you can begin to hear a drum roll and a crescendo of trumpets begin to blare. Here is a theme that gushes forth from the apostles' adoration of heart, one that is ignited now as he anticipates and declares emphatically in verse 7, Behold, He is coming with the clouds. Now, I want you to understand here, John explodes with the first prophetic oracle of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And beloved, herein is the ultimate theme of the book. Behold, it means look. It is used throughout the apocalypse to arouse the mind and the heart and to arrest one's attention to look at something to gaze at something with amazement, to gaze at that which is a special, miraculous intervention. Behold, Jesus is coming, is what he says. And grammatically, we see the idea here that he is already on his way. And I would submit to you that he is restrained only in his glorious providence to save all those whom he has appointed to save. And we read, He is coming with the clouds. Now, you must understand that clouds in Scripture symbolizes the glorious presence of God. Very often, the Shekinah glory of God. Remember, it was that cloud that led them through the wilderness. It was a thick cloud that descended upon Mount Sinai at the giving of the law. It was the thick cloud of God's glorious presence that stood at the entrance of the tabernacle when the Lord came and spoke to Moses. It symbolized the glory of God at the dedication of the tabernacle and later even the temple. This, beloved, is is that dazzling light of His Shekinah, the ineffable brilliance of the glory of God. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, we are told that the saints will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. I believe that to be a a text that refers to the rapture of the church, the translation of the church. The language of that time is very different than the language and the events of the second coming. At the great snatching away of the church that we will discuss at great length in days to come, we see that the Lord comes for His saints. And at the second coming, He comes with His saints. And we will be caught up, not just in the sky, but in the glorious clouds of His presence. 
So in verse 7, John tells us, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him, even so. Amen. Now, verse 7 is a fascinating text. John's details of this glorious coming here in verse 7 are taken from two Old Testament prophecies, one in Daniel 7.13 and the other in Zechariah 12, especially verse 10. And John had good reason to do this because 64 years earlier, he had heard the Lord Jesus Christ use the very same combination of these Old Testament texts in Daniel 7 and Zechariah 12. We read it earlier this morning in our scripture reading in Matthew 24, verse 30, where the Lord describes his second coming. He said, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. I believe that sign to be, again, a reference to his Shekinah, his glory, um, that the brilliant light of his presence. It will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Now here in Revelation verse, chapter 1, verse 7, we see that John's mind recaptures the words of Daniel the prophet in Daniel 7 and verse 13, here's what Daniel said. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion, glory and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Beloved, 2,500 years ago, Daniel saw the coming of the Son of Man to rule and to reign over the kingdom that was promised to David in 2 Samuel 7. He saw Him coming in the glorious clouds. And as we go back to Revelation and the rest of verse 7, John says, And every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. This is an allusion to Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10, verses 12, as well as verse 14. Now, let me give you the context here. It's important for you to grasp it. In Zechariah chapter 12, we read of how all of the nations of the earth will be gathered against Israel, against especially Jerusalem. We read how that the Lord is going to strike them and come to Israel's rescue and defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And then in verse 9 of Zechariah 12, we read that in that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. By the way, this is a sobering prophecy with respect to the fate of Islam and all of those countries that align themselves against Israel. One that is detailed more fully in Ezekiel 38, 39 and other passages of Scripture. But back to Zechariah 12 in verse 10. Again, the text that John is now alluding to. Here's what Zechariah said. In that day, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. And then in verse 12, we read that the land will mourn 
every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves. By the way, this is referring to the royal lions, lines, the royal lines of 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 David, who in the past have kind of led the charge in rejecting their Messiah. But when he returns, they are going to lead the chorus of repentance. Verse 13, we read that the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves. And this would be a reference to the priestly line of Levi and his grandson Shimei. And then in verse 14 of Zechariah 12, finally it concludes saying, All the families that remain, every family by itself and their wives by themselves. Let me give you a summary here of what I believe the Word of God teaches with respect to the end of the age. As we will discover the bride of Christ, the church will be translated into heaven. believe that to be the next event, the great rapture of the church. Because the church has been promised to be kept from the hour of testing that is about to come upon the whole world in Revelation 3.10. And then God will resume and finalize His 70th week judgment, a week of cataclysmic judgments upon His covenant people Israel that Daniel has detailed. A time of unprecedented global tribulation. And during the time of the tribulation, as we will discover in the book of Revelation, he will raise up 144,000 male Jews to be witnesses of the truth. 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. And during that time, we will see many Jews and Gentiles being saved. And as the Lord Jesus pours out his wrath upon the world, many Jews will finally wail in deep contrition, broken over the sin of their unbelief. As Zechariah 13.1 says, In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and, in, and for impurity. Oh, what a magnificent theme that John has to pen. Verse 7 again, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. But notice he adds, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Tribes can be translated families, not merely just the Jewish tribes as some would like to believe. And notice that this is over the earth. It indicates a global mourning, a sense of worldwide wailing. And it says that they will mourn. Uh, the, the Greek word is a word, kopto, uh, it, it means to beat the breast in wailing and mourning. That's the idea here. And it refers primarily to a mourning of despair. Though some may indeed be mourning in repentance, most will mourn in absolute horror. They will wail in horror as they see the coming of the Son of Man in power and great glory. Again, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 30, that when the Son of Man will appear in the sky, He says all the tribes, or literally all the families of the earth, will mourn. Literally, they will wail in terror. So when we link together John's words with the prophecies from which they have been derived, we have a clear description here of the theme 
of the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. It could be summarized this way, that when Jesus returns on the unmistakable clouds of glory, God's covenant people, the Jews, those still left at the end of the great tribulation, will mourn in deep contrition, both corporately and individually, as they behold the salvation of their Messiah. As the Messiah comes, the Lord Jesus Christ, to reconcile them unto himself, as well as all of the families of the earth are going to wail in utter horror as they behold the terrifying glory of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to judge them. Beloved, this is the theme of the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Again, look, he's saying, come and see. And I would ask you, if he came to suffer, would he not also come to rule and to reign? If he came once as a lamb, will he not also return as a lion? And notice how the entire globe is going to see the Son of Man in his terrifying descent. Verse 7, and every eye will see him. Now I cannot explain this. I can only tell you what the text says. But the indication here is that through some supernatural work of God, the clouds of his glory and will somehow envelop the entire globe. And everybody will be able to physically recognize the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole world will see him simultaneously. And Jesus has told us, as well as other texts, that all of the luminaries of the sky will be put out. There will be no confusion here. There will be no mistaking who and what this is. I would humbly ask those who would interpret verse 7 as mere figurative language. What possible meaning could this phrase have if it referred to merely some spiritual apprehension of truth in the hearts of men? As many would try to have us believe. No, beloved, I believe with all my heart that, again, this is a literal, physical appearing that every eye shall behold. Every eye doesn't behold when some man comes to a saving knowledge of Christ. Again, recall in Acts chapter 1, the apostles see the Lord Jesus Christ lifted up in a cloud now of glory. He's being received to heaven. He's being taken up out of their sight. And in Acts 1, verse 9, we read, And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Indeed, beloved, even as his ascension was physical, so too will be his return. Indeed, every eye will see him. As I think about that, I I think about all of those who prefer darkness over light. They're going to see him. They are all going to be blinded by the glory of his Shekinah. The, the, The clouds of glory that adorn the heavenly throne will descend. And the penetrating light of divine omniscience and divine judgment will expose the wickedness of man. There will be no place to hide. And they will wail in terror. His coming will be dreadful 
for all those who reject him. A horrifying grandeur. A consuming fire. A devouring flame. A terrifying majesty for all of those who have mocked him. Who have mocked the Lord of hosts. And John says at the end of verse 7, even so, amen. In other words, the day of judgment is fixed. Let it be so. Then in verse 8, we read, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now we can ask, is this God the Father speaking or God the Son? Frankly, there are compelling arguments for both. But after weighing them all, I am convinced that this is God the Father. When we read that it is the Lord, it says the Lord God, we know that that is a title of God the Father used throughout the Old Testament. We know that it is the Father in the Old Testament that refers to Himself as the great I Am. And the phrase who is and who was and who is to come is definitely the Father's title in verse 4. And we also know that in the Septuagint, the title, the Almighty, translates the Hebrew expression for Lord of hosts, which is also a title of the Father. And the Alpha and the Omega, we know that that is a similar statement spoken by the Father in chapter 21 and verse 6. So here I believe God the Father signs His signature on the oracle to affirm It's veracity. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Those are the first and last letters of the Greek language. And as you know, you can take letters and arrange them in an infinite number of ways to articulate truth. And what he is saying here is, I am the omniscient one. This affirms. His omniscience. He says, I am also the one who is and who was and who is to come. In other words, I am the eternal, self-existent, pre-existent, transcendent, omniscient, omnipotent God that confirms this prophecy. I am the Almighty. Ha Pantocrator in Greek. In other words, I am the one who holds all. I am the one who has authority over all. I am the unassailable, omnipotent, sovereign that has the authority over all things. That's what that term means. We will see it used eight times in the apocalypse. Beloved, there can be no greater signature than this. Nor can there be a more certain promise. Behold, He is coming With the clouds of glory. And the question is, are you ready to meet the Lord? I close with a quote. My old friend, Dr. Walvard, who has an excellent summary of these opening verses. I want to read it to you and I quote. Jesus Christ is the central figure of the opening eight verses of Revelation. As the source of Revelation, he is presented in verse one. As the channel of the word and testimony of God, he is cited in verse 2. His blessings through his revealed word are promised in verse 3. In verse 5, he is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. 
He is revealed to be the source of all grace who loves us and cleanses us from our sins through his shed blood. He is the source of our royal priesthood, who has the right to gather in himself all glory and dominion forever. He is promised to come with clouds attended with great display of power and glory. And every eye shall see the one who died for men. He is the almighty one of eternity past and eternity future. If no more, if no more had been written <clears throat> than that contained in this introductory portion of chapter one. It would have constituted a tremendous restatement of the person and work of Christ, such as found in no comparable section of Scripture. End quote. Oh, child of God, please hear me. Jesus is coming. Be encouraged with that truth. He is coming. And likewise, oh, sinner, won't you repent before it is too late? The storm clouds of judgment can be seen in the near distance, the great day of His wrath will soon be upon you. And if you die in your sins without repenting, you will someday stand before Him as judge, not as Savior. So may I call you to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, to confess your sin, and to plead with Him for His mercy. And He has promised that He will not turn you away. May today be the day of your salvation. Let's pray. Father, once again, we are sobered with the truths of your word. May they find receptive hearts. May the seeds of each word bear much fruit in our lives. That we might be vigilant in our service and faithful in our witness. Lord, may we continue to long for the hope that we know is ours in Christ Jesus. And again, I plead for those who do not know you as Savior, especially those who are deceived by some false religious system. Lord, I pray that you will speak to them the truth of the pure gospel, that they might be saved. Thank you, Lord, for ministering to us by the power of your Spirit. For it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information, or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.